This is writer and game designer Robin D. Law. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And for the first time since the great unpleasantness, not only is Ken here, but also Robin is here. For our podcast, Ken and Robin talk about stuff live at Gen Con. <laughs> Recorded in front of a searingly good looking audience in the sumptuous confines of the Indianapolis Convention Center. In room 245, which is only six away from room 237. Which all all horror fans know not to go anywhere near. Bandwidth and travel considerations brought to you by Pelgrain Press. We can't predict the topics. But they might just include... Tabletop and adventure gaming. Elliptony. Time travel. Cinema. Occultism. And that weird article you forwarded us. And of course, food. Food. Welcome, dear listeners, to the realm of God's Forge, where battles between spellcasters unfold in a fast pace. Spellcasting battles, huh? So it's like a magical food fight, but with lightning bolts instead of mashed potatoes? Well, uh, not exactly. God's Forge is all about lightning-quick spellcraft. Roll your dice, tweak the results, and avail your best card. Wait, tweaking dice? Is that even legal? I mean, I've been in trouble for less. Uh, yes, it's all above board. And here's the twist. Simultaneous play. Picture this. Everyone's rolling dice, crafting spells, and launching attack in one synchronized frenzy. Simultaneous play, you say? Like a mystical mosh pit where everyone's tossing spells like confetti or a magical flash mob, but instead of jazz hands, we're flinging fireballs. Exactly. And let's not forget the stunning art of God's Forge. It captures a world of dark, epic struggle. Yes, it's always a struggle deciding whether to wear the cloak of dramatic flair or the robe of very short destiny. And to top it all off, the second edition of God's Forge is here, along with two new expansions, Return of the Dragon Gods and Twilight of the Great Houses. Hold your magical horses. Two expansions. Because clearly one apocalyptic event just isn't enough these days. Two expansions indeed. So gear up, fellow spellcasters, and journey into the epic saga that is God's Forge. God's Forge 2nd Edition is in stock and ready to order now. Learn more at atlasgames.com God's Forge or follow the link in the show notes. So this is a live episode, which we'll be putting up a little later when I'm off at the Robin and Valerie International Film Festival installment two. So instead of our uh, customary celebration of 10 of our uh, finest Patreon backers, we would like to celebrate all of the Patreon backers who are in attendance today. So if you support us on uh, Patreon, uh, stand on up so that everyone else can applaud and admire you. Say the show wouldn't have continued without you. We mean that literally. We would have quit a long time ago. God, yes. Okay, so those of you who know the live format know what to expect. And uh, what you perhaps expected is that I remembered to pack the Nerd Trope cards. These are, of course, the cards uh, created for us uh, many years ago by our listener, Calif Tate. They include a nerd card on one side, a trope card on the other. And I draw them randomly and can... In, in no way prepared in advance for this. None whatsoever. Barely sentient, frankly. We'll thread them together while I sit back, perhaps take a nap, or maybe with a wisecrack or two. So the nerd card is another nerd card. It's faced Ben Franklin. Ben Franklin. Ben Franklin. Ben Franklin. And the trope card is zombies. Zombies! <laughs> 
well, this one's almost too easy. Uh, <laughs> frankly, Wait. you should just finish it in your heads, and I can take a nap. I, in fact, didn't somebody beat you? To, beat us to this one? Yeah, I think maybe. I don't know. Who can tell? But Ben Franklin. We know two things about Ben Franklin. First, he discovered lightning. <laughs> performing his famous experiment when he flew a kite in a thunderstorm with a key dependent from it by a waxed string to draw lightning down and harness the power of electricity, America's best element. And also, he sawed up dead people in his house. In London, they dug up uh, Benjamin Franklin's old basement. He lived in London for a great long time when he was American colonies uh, sort of uh, ambassador slash spokesman slash lobbyist at Parliament, and he lived in a London townhome. And they were digging around in the basement of that townhome, as you do, probably to put in a, you know, I don't know, a functioning plumbing system, who could say? And they discovered a lot, a lot, a lot of dead bodies that were all sewn up, uh, wait, sawn wait, up. Sorry, point of privilege here. There, some of them are turtles, because we've done this. Yeah, we have. We've done That's this. That's why this is so easy. So let's add, and we've done that one too, uh, Elvis Presley. Elvis Presley. So it's Elvis Presley, Ben Franklin, and, and zombies. zombies. All right. Well, uh, as I said, it was almost too easy. You could all finish it. Ben Franklin supplied with a ream, a raft of dead bodies from his vivisectionist, well, maybe not vivisectionist, but certainly resurrectionist experiments in the basement of his London townhome where he lived next to a doctor with whose wife he was carrying on an affair. Great fun. Him and uh, Dr. Uh, Where's the Horns are building zombies obviously to send out to bring down uh, the British industrial complex in case of a war. They're infiltrated into positions not of great power. You can't really infiltrate zombies in a position of great power in British politics. (laughs) (laughs) But um, uh, they're doing the sort of rote labor, building uh, ships, etc. And at the moment... Uh, when uh, America's peril is most dire, Benjamin Franklin will close the great electrical switch in Philadelphia, sending a signal to all these zombies to rise up and destroy London, or at least destroy the British fleet. But, you know, whatever. Break an omelet, burn down a city. It happens. So, that obviously happened in 1778, the darkest time of uh, the American uh, resistance, just before the French signed the alliance. Benjamin Franklin may have pointed out, I'm in France now, and you don't know who's in my basement. And the French said, oh yeah, alliance. Yeah, absolutely, Ben Franklin, that works. So America was able to declare its independence, and France was able to invade a zombie-paralyzed England. So everyone won. Fast forward, Robin, if you will, with me, to 1956, when the United States, grown fat and sassy in its complete domination of the continent, has perhaps departed from some of Ben Franklin's wisdom, you know, the democracy, the common man stuff, but kept the part where you enforce social control with zombies and electricity. Maybe Aaron Burr had something to do with it. Maybe um, uh, Woodrow Wilson, who was all about experimenting on people in a political science way, not a real science way. But, you know, needs must when the devil drives. Lots of weird electricity guys, and, of course, Thomas Edison, as we all know, famously would hang out with Henry Ford and say, wouldn't everything mo- run smoother if it was run by just spitballing here Thomas Edison and maybe Henry Ford? Henry Ford would say, yeah, I think so. So let us assume a host-gilded age assumption of power in America by your Thomas Edisons, your Henry Fords, your giants of industry, your master of his invention, your people who control the electrical signal that sends zombies to kill. Into that America comes a leader, Robin 
I dare say, a hero, perhaps even a solar hero, a cultural hero, your Robin Hood, your Heracles, your figure around whom resistance can accumulate. Someone perhaps fated to live in a, a quantum state between uh, life and, and death. Someone, exactly. Someone upon whom zombification merely produces an electrical charisma, yeah. if I may. Um, and of course, we do know that uh, Elvis Presley had a, a twin who died at birth. So Elvis Presley is both magically and electrically connected to the realm of the dead. So Elvis Presley is uh, leading a musical revolution. The, the, the kids, the youths, flock to his banner. And what we have is a rock and roll zombie 50s drive-in spectacular of a campaign right. in which 40 million Elvis fans can't be wrong and they can't all be killed by zombies. So I would say that if you are a fan of Rich Ranallo's lovely game Velvet Generation, maybe this, you could hack this. And instead of uh, aliens who are coming to inspire revolution. It is, in fact, Elvis, America's very own solar myth. Right, because you mentioned the solar myth. Uh, we all know that uh, these particular zombies, uh, you need flame to take them out. And Absolutely. So, therefore, uh, the way to win is a hunka hunka burning zombies. <laughs> After a serpentine journey, the long-awaited scenario supplement for Cthulhu Confidential has shed its final skin to achieve full print form. Yes, Even Death Can Die is now a book filled with terror for one player and one GM. Featuring three scenarios apiece, starring the core book's iconic investigators. Chris Bivey's scholarly World War II vet Langston Wright takes on corrupt businessmen and Nazi spies in One for the Money. Struggles to expel an extraterrestrial passenger from his body in The Shadow Over Washington. And tangles with a traveling fire and brimstone evangelist in Preacher Man Blues. Ruth Tillman's straight-talking New York investigative journalist Vivian Sinclair tackles murder from a distance in The Howling fog goes deep underground as a strike roils a water tunnel project and deeper things stir further below in Axistoria and finds the creepy and crawly behind a gambling ship benefit gala in boundary waters and my LA hardboiled detective Dex Raymond looks into a wave of rat attacks and a child's disappearance leading to the house up in the hills. Takes on a case for a legendary movie prop designer when Frankenstein's lab gear goes missing in High Voltage Kill. And finds something terrible under a bed at the Revelstock Hotel in Skin and Teeth. Can you solve these cases with your hide and mind intact? Find out in Even Death Can Die, now available from your superior local game store. Or at the Pelgrane Press web store. So at this point, we uh, move to another ritual of our live shows, which is me taking questions, me reminding you to remind me to repeat the questions, and me failing to do that. So whenever one of us just jumps in with a comically brilliant response that is ruined by the fact that our people at home won't be able to hear it, please shout, repeat the question. Uh, please practice uh, for the moment. So I've, uh, yeah, okay, sure. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Repeat the question. Thank you. Thank you so much. So who is brave enough here to uh, step forward with the first question? There we go. Uh, the question is, household uses of harissa paste. 
I've never used Harissa paste. Oh. I think you, uh, uh, Harissa is great. For you. Harissa paste, uh, for those who are not familiar, is a, a North African, generally Tunisian, but it, you can get different varieties of Harissa all along the coast. And it is a hot chili pepper paste, basically. It is not dissimilar to sambal whey-like, except it's less garlicky and less vinegary. It's more just a pure chili paste, uh, like Calabrian chili paste, if you get that from South Italy. And I assume there's a connection. Anyhow, uh, Harissa is wonderful on Arabian or, or Middle Eastern meats, vegetables, rice. Basically, if you're making something and you decide not to go the Zatar, Ra's al-Hanout, warm spices route with the cinnamon and the cardamom and whatever else, you can go the other way, the harissa route. You can do uh, harissa and um, maybe onion, maybe a little garlic, and it will wake everything the heck up. It's basically, if you would use sriracha on it in East Asian cuisine, you can use harissa on it in Moroccan, North African, Mediterranean cuisine. The caveat that I would put on there is I think many of us are more habituated to sriracha. So using harissa at a one-to-one level may cause a bit of a, a bit of a you know chakra awakening that you didn't want. But I mean the great thing about chili paste is you can test it out on you know uh, bread or whatever else and just get your own comfort level with before you use it. But it's it's really no different from Calabrian chili paste or sambal Waylek. Uh, its job is to provide a sharp, hot, wonderful burst of flavor to what might otherwise just be rice or uh, some other sort of uh, bready goodness, uh, pasta if you're doing the Italian stuff. And next question, in the back. Uh, what uh, cosmic horror did Barbenheimer protect us from? Well, Nyarlathotep, over the course of the uh, pandemic, which he insists he had nothing to do with, because he considers it hack work, is down with streaming, and he's hoping to move us to an entirely all-streaming environment. And uh, for many years, what he's been doing in that is just sort of twisting people so that when they go to the cinema, they make the cinema experience terrible. So when you are in, like in stadium seating and you see someone using your phone or like have their screen open in the, in the middle of a screening or you have like parents letting a kid watch YouTube in the middle of something or, you know, just the people who drift in and out, all the, all the stupid ambient sound. But that's, you know, Lafotep has been working at us for a couple of decades in order to degrade the, uh, the cinema experience. And although he's been rather successful in that, I think neither of us can want film to go away and an event like this and an amazing confluence of you know two uh, different you know recognizable but original things coming out on the same weekend with a contrast and getting people excited about going to the movies was a big blow against uh neurolathotep but i'm sure uh you know he's happy about the strike and uh, i think uh, we may need to you know find another great pairing of, of movies after this is all over to get people back in the movies. And I will point out, of course, that uh, Barbie and Oppenheimer are literally the alchemical marriage. And uh, so uh, the alchemical marriage is uh, performed to create the Philosopher's Stone, which elevates us from the condition of lead. And in this case, the condition of lead would be Cachil Outhouse, the treader of the dust. Right. And the other question that we're often faced with in uh, Lovecraftian studies is in Lovecraft's universe, there is no powerful source of love or positivity or anything that can defeat the mythos, and that's because we haven't yet before called on Barbie. Right. <laughs> Next question. 
In an argument over the best kombucha, the Nordic alien and the gray alien get into a fight. First of all, no one wins if you fight over kombucha. <laughs> That's just embarrassing. Uh, but uh, if it's a straight fist fight, the Nordic alien's got to win. He's got reach. He's got muscle mass. Uh, as long as the gray alien can't use any of his uh, psychic, um, uh, you know, owl vision powers. He's got to get his little probe device and... Yeah, you, you, yeah. This is the guy who, who brings a probe device to a, an atomic armor fight. Yeah, but the, the Nordic alien is a space brother. He's not going to lead with the with the combat. He's going to try and you know uh, chill it out. He's, he's going to basically self righteously try to bore the gray alien about the <laughs> ecological well, organic they, impact they, of the kombucha. They are fighting. Out, out comes the probe. They, they are fighting over kombucha. So boring you to death is, I guess, the opening right. move. I don't think the gray alien even likes kombucha. He's just trying to be a well. Alien. Given what gray aliens like. I mean, yeah. <laughs> but further if, deponents say if not. But uh, as we pointed out, in this instance, not wrong. Yeah. The question is about uh, Robin's initial masterpiece, a career of setting the gaming industry on its ear, GURPS Fantasy II Into the Madlands. Yeah, Adventures in the Madlands. If you're Googling that up on, on uh, well, you can get it in PDF from Steve Jackson Games to this day. So that's, that book is why I have this job. That's why I'm here today. I became involved in a, an, an APA, an amateur press association, called the Larms and Excursions. Uh, for those of you who are not closer to the grave than birth, um, <laughs> an APA was basically a mimeographed zine that was assembled by a main editor, in this case Lee Gold. You uh, sent in your contributions either later on in the period when I was uh, contributing to it. You could actually just send computer files, but initially you had to like send mimeograph sheets in, and she would take this old mimeograph and put them together in different bits of paper. And it was sort of like an internet forum before the, the internet was really available to people, including all the arguing back and forth, except there was a month between all the arguing. At um, the speed of postage. And the speed of postage. And I remember very excitedly when you know, that period of the month came around when it was like, what, is it here today? Is it here today? Because you know, I might open it up and people may argue with things that I had said a month ago or two or three months ago. But in addition to the arguing, people would occasionally put gaming content in. And so uh, what I did then was to describe my super weird home campaign based on the premise that you never want to get too close to the gods. And it doesn't matter who the gods are. If you're too close to them, that's horror. And so it depicted a uh, sort of a tribal culture with low technology off in the little corner of a fantasy world. Not unlike Lapland. Right, um, but also there's sort of an, an indigenous flavor to it, and you were afraid of all the terrible monsters from about ab- uh, absence, so there's a, a boneless monster, which is a big flap of skin, like a manta ray that would flap through the forest to come to you, or a skinless, which was you know, what you would think it like was. the other half of that monster. The other half of that monster. <laughs> um, but the really terrible thing were, were the gods. There was a, a terrible, frightening bear. There was a, a Big Leaper and Little Leaper, and Little Leaper could occasionally ride in a, a pouch in the front of Big Leaper, or you know there was uh, the this uh, this donkey of gloom, and so and a tiger, I believe. and I believe the, the tiger was the worst, and so I ran my group of players that I assembled for the first time uh, since not playing in high school, and I began to write up this weirdo campaign. One day, out of the blue, I get a set of writer's guidelines from Steve Jackson Games, and. It's Steve himself saying, do you want to make this into a GURPS book? And I, I okay, sure. <laughs> uh, okay, you're yeah. the expert. 
Yeah. Um, and I'd always thought of myself as a writer, but I'd never thought of my hobby, uh, role-playing games, as an outlet uh, for that work. And so I got to work. Now, at the same time, I was also sending letters, uh, which is another old technology I don't have time to explain, uh, <laughs> to uh, postal friend uh, Jonathan Tweet and giving him information for his unpublishable game that he was running, which of course became Over the Edge, another long story. But between those two things, that gave me enough to go on to start to get in touch with other people and brought me to my first uh, Gen Con, which I is like 92, 93, somewhere in there. And at that first Gen Con, uh, Ken Rolston, one of my uh, idols uh, of uh, game writing, came up and enthused about GURPS fantasy uh, too. So uh, I learned a lot from Steve's editing on that work, and, and that has stood me in good stead ever after. And I, uh, when I edit other people's stuff, I'm often drawing on things that Steve taught me by telling me not to do that. Um, <laughs> and it was originally not supposed to be called Fantasy 2, and so that was the cause of a weird uh, sort of schism in the audience because it created the expectation that it was a sequel to Fantasy, which was their sort of standard fantasy world and of course it's this incredibly weirdo thing from nowhere and especially compared to the GURPS stuff that existed that was not the sensibility of no. GURPS whatsoever <laughs> and uh, in fairness it's still not it's still not um, but they've done other things that are kind of out there including things that you've done but at the time so the regular GURPS so there was a division in the, between uh, people who loved GURPS were baffled and angered by it um, and but people who just read one of everything and read GURPS things because they were things loved it and that sort of created the reputation that got me started and, and also don't get too close to Winnie the Pooh The best of Ask the Geln is now available at Drive-Thru RPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. As a means of protection of the human race, what is Dracula doing with the eye? Well, first of all, Dracula is not protecting the human race. I don't know what you've no, been. For you to protect us. Oh, for me to protect you, inform you about Dracula. Okay, I, I missed your parenthetical. All right. What is Dracula doing with AI? All right. Uh, I think we have a couple of strong possibilities. First, Dracula is a 500 year old Transylvanian warlord. He doesn't know what an AI is, he has people for that. Um, what Dracula does is he looks for functional, competent, driven, virtuous human societies, 
and not unlike Neil Othotep in his cinema business, uh, attempts to vitiate and destroy them. And so he's just, are you vitiating and destroying things? You're a venture capitalist? Sure, there you go. Here's a ton of Habsburg gold, knock yourself out. He doesn't care if it's AI, he doesn't care what, are, what, what all kind of nonsense they're up to. But in a world in which the girl with hungry eyes, Fritz Lieber's uh, vampire, who existed in billboards and drank your soul when you looked at the billboard and lusted after her, she, of course, is on the internet now. And she basically is uh, a lot of websites. I'll say Instagram, because this is a family audience, but there's other websites out there. Just Google. Um, anyhow, I think that she is sort of, in the way that Dracula often lets the ladies uh, take the first move in the dance, she has come to Dracula and said, having lived in the internet for a great long time, it is a little bit slow to wait for actual girls to uh, embody my archetype if I could just invent them, make them, build them out of pixels, and uh, let's say programmers with a lot of spare time, we could really accelerate the part where I've drunk everybody's soul and given it to you, my dark master. And Dracula, of course, loves all of this plan, and so I believe that the girl with hungry eyes is accelerating. She began with AI you know, art to begin with, and then because technology sort of spreads and sparkles, people were like, oh, we can do that with words. Now, is there a vampiric text that also poisons the mind of those who read it, uh, Encyclopedia of Plan uh, style? I would not dare to say there is not. So maybe Dracula's got a bride and a book, and the book is making the AI text, the, the chat GSPT, and uh, the girl with hungry eyes is making the AI art, and when they make terrible garbage AI movies, uh, that'll probably be a, com uh, you know, a, a team up between those two, and that will, in fact, as you pointed out, doom humanity, which is uh, a, yet another reason to stay off the internet and away from books. There's a question right behind the previous questioner. Is a bottled-in bond whiskey worth the upcharge? Robin? I'm a freelance writer. I can't afford that. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> I will say that in a lot of cases, it depends on the distillery. And bottled-in bond basically just means that, I mean, it originally meant... Uh, you did it in a warehouse where the government was watching, so you couldn't screw it up. Uh, now it has come to sort of mean uh, we did it in our warehouse under a sort of specific set of circumstances, and by and large, that will be a higher quality whiskey because it's sort of a self-reinforcing, we're selling this to a high-dollar customer. If it's garbage, they won't buy from us and we'll be ruined because small distillers especially live or die on their high-dollar customers. So it is generally better than whatever their normal whiskey is, and whether that is worth the upcharge to you is about your whiskey consumption, not about the quality. Right. I so, feel like so essentially it's a, they keep running out of different ways to say super-duper special. Right, yeah. So it's like, you know, reserve, small batch. family reserve, right. small batch. So they got to keep Single up. Single cast, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. And, and so I'm, I'm, one of my really, really good friends uh, works at a distillery and could go on endlessly about it, but I will say that generally, whatever their, their mark of distinction is, you know, drink what you can afford until you get to the point where you say, I can't afford that. But by and large, with most American bourbons, most Scottish single malts, virtually every Irish whiskey, once you get above the department store whiskey, you're probably having a pretty great time. And, you know, you know what your wallet can, can stand. I have drunk triple digit price tag bourbons that were certainly great to drink, but I don't know if they were 
triple digit great to drink. So everyone's an individual. Uh, next question. So what is the true intention of the swapping out of the convention center carpet? Well, I, I think it's probably a, a protection against, uh, you know, years of biological contamination. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, but the question then becomes, why are they selling something that is obviously a biohazard? Um, and the, answer, the big answer, capitalism. Uh, the smaller answer, uh, game collectors. Game collectors co uh, collect all sorts of ephemera, crazy things. We've been hanging out with them because of their special... Because uh, of their access to bourbon. These are obviously people who have no idea what they should be spending money on correctly. <laughs> yeah. um, and so they will buy things like, uh, you know, the... the annual report from TSR from 1983 or... And, and when you say why, they say there's only three in existence. Yeah. And I would say and? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the rarest things are these RPJ belt buckles that uh, are... And there's ones that are super extra special, duper rare. They're so, they're so rare that Chinese uh, 3D manufacturing companies have begun trying to forge them. So, so great fun. Right. Uh, so I'm sure someone said, well, wait a minute, that's not just any horrible contaminated old carpet, that's Gen Con horrible contaminated old carpet. Uh, just like when we were hanging out with the collectors uh, the other day, I, I uh, sort of jokingly said, oh, well, this ephemera is all selling for big dollars. Ken, you should have saved your tourniquet from your gunshot wound. <laughs> you could have auctioned that off. And I was expecting them to go, ha, ha, ha. And they said, yeah, you should have. <laughs> So clearly biohazard is, again, not on the forefront of their thoughts. Yeah. Um, the other possibility is that uh, the random walk of 80,000 human beings back and forth over that carpet creates a sort of an intentional uh, a pentacle, you know, like you'd magnetize uh, metal by passing electrons back and forth over it. This would be magnetized to intent and therefore would have value as a magical sigil. So if you've walked on that carpet, uh, Bill Meinhardt now has part of your soul. I'm sorry. Right in the back. The question is the uh, UFOs, or as we say now, UAPs. Uh, we don't want to dead name the UFOs. Um, uh, what being created them, and what technologies have we reverse engineered from them? And I guess we have two answers. The beings that created them were the United States Air Force Counterintelligence Office when they made them up. And the technology we have uh, reverse engineered from them is trolling the Russians. <laughs> With, with, with a side order of trolling the Chinese. Right, yeah. Um, well, that's still in beta. But the answer given by uh, uh, David Grush is that I believe uh, it used to be that it was um, the uh, transistor and the microchip that came from aliens. Well, that's passe. Now it's the, the gallium uh, circuits in your iPhone, I believe, is, is alien tech according to uh, David Grush. And again, we've been reverse engineering aliens since the 1930s, according to this guy. Uh, the CIA got them from Mussolini's Italy in 45. So it, maybe it, the transistor actually, was one. The, yeah. the number one most uh, commercially effective thing that we got from the aliens is whiteout. It, that was alien blood. Um, <laughs> and n since whiteout is no longer a thing, they've had to you know sort of try and branch out. Yeah, now it's... Um, uh, um, I think it's that uh, Soylent Shake that you drink. Right. That, and, that's what they do with it. And, and sodium dextrose. Yeah. So the question is, how would you fit uh, your GURPS thing, Cabal, into the Infinite World setting? Well, I mean, those name drops were by me. Uh, 
the um, so if you'd like to know, read GURPS Infinite Worlds by Kenneth Height. Available uh, wherever fine uh, games are downloadable. The GURPS Cabal began as a back, uh, a sort of a campaign frame in the back of GURPS Horror Second Edition. And when I was hired to do GURPS Horror Third Edition, I said, "What about the Cabal?" And they said, "Would you like to do a book just about the Cabal?" And I said, "Would I?" Um, and uh, at that time, my thought was, "Why on earth is it a matter of?" nine minutes calculation to shoot a gun in GURPS, which is the simplest damn thing in the universe, versus doing magic in GURPS, which is one roll on a cloud of dust. I said it should be the other way around. Rather than change the gun rules, I just added immense numbers of nonsensical modifiers, all drawn from genuine occultism to casting a spell, and then gave the people who had the knowledge of those modifiers the advantage, obviously, in a magical universe. Those became the Cabal, which is a team of uh, mages and monsters that uh, secretly uh, uh, ruled the world from behind the scenes as they did in uh, a very popular product at the time, Vampire the Masquerade. So the Cabal was sort of a, a Steve Jackson version of Vampire in the same way that fantasy was a Steve Jackson version of D&D. So the, um, the Cabal got its own book and it was great fun and everyone loved it. And then when Dave Pulver wrote the core book, he put the Cabal into his little tiny pressy of the Infinite Worlds, because he was, his job was to tie all the GURPS books in. And I said, well, Dave, now you've given me an excuse. So I started saying that in worlds where magic works, the Cabal obviously can go between worlds because they can go to the uh, world of symbolic meaning at the center of the cosmos. And then rather than just go to boring old regular Malkuth, they can go to any Malkuth that they want, any of the material realms. And so they travel between worlds through, uh, I think I called them Gates of Ptah to show off, that let them go to alternate worlds and loot them for magic. And so the Cabal is sort of the bad guy extractive foe if you are the regular jut-jawed time patrol guys in a, or Infinity uh, Inc. Uh, guys, in a timeline where magic works. So it basically it gives you a reason to fight a werewolf. In Delta Green, cosmic terror meets modern conspiracy. The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors. They misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden. Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the source book for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation X. In Delta Green, The Conspiracy. An updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new art and graphic design. Featuring top-secret eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a forward by Ray Plausibly Deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the Nirvana of Nyarlatha Tap. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from. That's Delta Green, the conspiracy. From Arc Dream Publishing. So let's have someone who hasn't asked a question before. 
So the question is, uh, Schrodinger's cat is suddenly always find alive. What does this mean for the biggest scientific breakthrough? I think it means that the strong nuclear force stops working because the <laughs> quantum, uh, all quantum states have collapsed, if that's the case. That's, right. that's and, and also it kills a crucial metaphor based on a misunderstanding of science. <laughs> ironically. So, ironically. So what that does is it uh, bolts the boiling, the frog won't get out of boiling water up to number one in that slot. Um, that causes uh, the world's frogs to, they, they've been sapient for a while, but they see what we're doing. They have no desire to take part in it, but they finally get completely annoyed and say, you know, we're amphibians. We're actually very sensi- uh, sensitive to temperature changes. You know what we do when we're in water and, and then we realize that uh, some goof has put us in a pan and it's getting hotter? We jump out. We're, we said amphibians already. So really, uh, what it will do is uh, nothing to do with that sort of science, but it will cause the great amphibian frog reveal. So the, the question is, uh, can, what powers does your bloodstained tourniquet possess? And uh, what other game designer ephemera uh, have similar powers? So um, I've met the tourniquet. Um, uh, and it, I have to say, has a pretty high opinion of itself. Um, it just keeps going on about how it's the best tourniquet. It's the best tourniquet in the best city in the world. Um, the problem is that uh, not so much Virgil, but Black Philip sometimes gets a hold of it and you know, sort of plays with it a bit. Uh, it's like reminds him of other times he's bitten Ken. So I, I'm not sure if it's it's like Ken. It's too busy really to do a lot of things. Yeah, most of the blood-stained cloth, my old uh, blue jeans that I was wearing at the time, Sheila said when I asked, she said, oh, the, the hospital gave me them. And then I said, and? And she said, that's what happened. <laughs> so my theory is that Sheila needs clothing stained with my blood that could be left far away <laughs> from where my body is. (laughs) So mostly what it does is it distracts police investigation. Um, Other game designer relics would have other results, but Sheila has no reason to wish most other game designers dead that I know of. Um, So um, the cosmic or psychic or occult relic associated with me is the uh, uh, tulpa of a fine bottle of uh, smell batch rum. And it's been haunting me for many years now. The, the only way to dispel it is to have someone bring me <laughs> a bottle of it's, it's exquisite it's, small batch rum. It, it's it's a material component. Yeah. And with that, you could defeat that total. Exactly. Finally. It's a polarity situation. Finally. Yeah. Uh, next question. <laughs> what sinister force interfered with Robin's journey to Gen Con? Air Canada. And why? Yeah. <laughs> why? Because... They just can't airline. Right. So it turns out that the uh, extremely convenient Toronto to Indianapolis direct flight that I've relied upon for many, many years, there's no failure case for it. Because if I was doing some hideous thing with a, a stopover, they'd have other options. But uh, So uh, the thing is, I can't possibly have been a sinister force in any way because... That enabled me, after a, a lot of Catch-22 resolution at the airport, going to your house again yeah. and, and seeing your library, meeting 
Virgil and Philip and seeing mm-hmm. Sheila again and yeah. discovering that I'm not that allergic to uh, Virgil and Philip. So, Great news. Uh, Superb news, really. So if it's a sinister force, there, it, it's a pretty good track. It's playing the long game. Yeah, I got to <laughs> I, I got to have a road trip with Ken and, and Will Heinmarch and Emily Campius. There's, uh, uh, I can't possibly imagine anything sinister. No, surely, surely nothing sinister could, uh, could be causing that. Un- unless there is something happening in Indianapolis that was something really terrible maybe happened in Indianapolis on Monday afternoon that my presence would have averted. Yeah. So I mean, it could have been a plot against Indianapolis. Yeah. Uh, yeah, if you did see a ghostly bottle of small batch rum in <laughs> Indianapolis on Monday afternoon. It may have been trying to stop me from getting here, period, right. because there is the risk that someone will give me its nemesis. It's always it's always a risk. Yeah. Uh, we have another new questioner. Uh, Karen has his finger up. Oh, Karen. To punch the living crap out of the Phantom Stranger for doing that to me. <laughs> Re- repeat the question. Yes. We find ourselves 20 years old again in a DC comic style reboot of ourselves in 2023 and decide to restart uh, our careers as game designers and what would we do? Is right. The well, the thing is, if we never existed, role playing would be a fallow wasteland. <laughs> I, I think in a DC Comics style reboot, role playing would have been a uh, a burgeoning young art form because just like uh, Superman lands in uh, Smallville twenty years before whatever's going on, right? Dave Arneson and uh, what's his name would have made uh, Dungeons and Dragons just you know uh, twenty years before we started our career, whatever year that was. So exactly the same thing happens, but we're better drawn. Yeah, exactly the same thing happens, but we're better drawn, and uh, somehow we're uh, involved with AI, probably. Right. Because that's. But, but, but yeah. in either case, we just continue to find the Robin and Ken-shaped holes in the scene and fill them. And fill them. Yeah. And also, I, I reiterate, punch the living hell out of the Phantom Stranger for making me do that again. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, the real risk is that one of us would go. What if this time we got a real job? What if, <laughs> what if, we, what what if, if we, we could afford to cities that to go to cities that weren't Indianapolis what and if we, drink what if we afford uh, our own small whiskey. batch rum? <laughs> yeah. yeah. What if I use this brain for something financially rewarding? That would be the real. Uh, that's so, the real risk, right? So yeah. I guess that's the one where Doctor Manhattan does that, and it's boring, and then he decides, oh uh, no, sorry, that was all just that, a that was mistake. just messed up. Yeah. Uh, next question. Well, repeat Ken, the question. I'll say so. Now that I know where Ken lives, uh, who would give me the highest order for the assassination coordinates? Well, certainly not those amateurs who tried earlier. Um, Get what you pay for. Uh, they're not getting the assassination coordinates out of me. He's my meal ticket. Never mind. Forget about it. I, I could, I guess, lure them all into. I could do like a, you know, have all of the the nemesis show up at the meeting, and then Ken can sort of slide in Bond style and, and surprise them and then sort of boast them to death. Could be like a, um, uh, a what's the one where it's, there's all the hitmen in the world are going after the, the same target right. shooting aces or whatever it is. It's like murder on the over uh, Orient Express. Express except you have a machine gun already. Exactly. <laughs> that's, that's what that needed was, was gunplay. Um, uh, yeah, uh, I, I feel like the person who wants to murder me already knows where I live. <laughs> that she literally lives with me. So, um, yeah, uh, you know, if, if Robin is going to inform any of my lesser, my, my not arch villains, my regular villains, then it's just going to be a big old, you know, 
uh, Brian Hitch style portrait uh, uh, art. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, and I I know you're all you know second to nemesis, and I don't like them much either. Yeah, right. Uh, Why not so, wipe them out? Uh, we have time for one final question. What are the hamsters and the guinea pigs planning, Robin? Well, uh, they are. Uh, first of all, they're in league with the frogs, <laughs> and really, what they're uh, doing is they they want to save us. Uh, the hamsters and guinea pigs, like many animals, there's all sorts of animals. If you look on uh, YouTube, it used to be said that only you know five or six different animals wanted to be pets, but we now know that lots of animals would like to be pets because it's a great gig. Um, and so the hamsters and guinea pigs are afraid that we're kind of in trouble and we kind of mess things up. Uh, they kind of liked the pandemic because they got to hang out with us more, but uh, there's many more hamsters and guinea pigs who are not being fed by owners, and so they would like us to chill uh, before we destroy ourselves. Um, and so that requires them to call on the great heroes of the hamster and guinea pigs, and those are the capybaras. Uh, <laughs> capybaras, of course, are the uh, largest and most mellow of the rodents, and they're also friends to all other animals. Again, you can see on YouTube, a capybara will hang with a cat, hang with an ocelot, uh, animals who you would expect to be their predators. They're just chilling, and they are, they are the iconic embodiment of chill and we as humans uh, we badly need to chill uh, just emotionally also the planet that would be nice uh, and so they're, they're thinking of us by uh, giving more uh, psychic power and ultimately political influence to capybaras now Robin of course has given you the feel good Canadian version of the story <laughs> but I'm going to say that the uh, replication crisis in science in which peer-reviewed uh, studies turn out to be hogwash because the data doesn't uh, make any sense or it can't be replicated under laboratory conditions. People can't use spreadsheets, it it's, turns out. It's, it's not just that uh, science is inherently corrupt. It's also the guinea pigs have been messing with them. It's like, oh no, just eat all the saccharin and uh, pretend you have cancer. Uh. <laughs> ah, is he gone? Yeah, okay. So I feel like guinea pigs are slowly trying to divert a lot of uh, American uh, uh, and global, really, science in directions that we perhaps uh, do not understand. The hamsters, by the way, totally innocent. Robin was right about them. But the guinea pigs bear watching, not least because they're in league with rats. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Telegram Press. Ask for Gown. Dark Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Snag Ken and Robin apparel and other erudite merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Find such classic designs as... Nod knowingly if you're a tulpa. On X, he's at Kenneth Height. And on Mastodon, he's Robin D. Laws at Dice.camp. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs> <laughs>